I'm Antonia Preville and you are listening to The Most of It, where I speak to people with a range of expertise and experiences as I endeavour to find the answer to one big question. How do we make the most of our lives? This week, I am talking to Mandy Lynn Catron, and let's just say, if anyone has the formula for love, it might just be Mandy. She is an author and a creative writing lecturer, and has written a book called How to Fall in Love with Anyone, a memoir in essays. But she's probably best known for writing one of the most popular New York Times articles of 2015, which talks about a science experiment in which love was attempted in a laboratory environment. Mandy has spent years researching love from so many angles and she was able to offer so many fascinating insights into love, like why we fall in love, what happens when we fall in love, how our experience of love might be influenced by the cultural narrative of love that is all around us, and also what can go wrong in love and how we can best keep our love relationships alive and well and healthy. I loved it. Mandy is great. I got so much out of it and I hope you guys will too. I thought if it's okay with you, if we could start with the famous article, uh, lots of people already know about this, but I think for the people who don't, it's a fascinating place to start because the title of your article that went viral was one of the most popular articles in the New York Times in 2015 is called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This, which is a pretty compelling title because it suggests that there perhaps is some sort of formula to this process of falling in love that otherwise we thought was random and passive, something that happened to us. So could you just tell us a bit about the study and how it affected your life on quite a profound level? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, it impacted my life in so many ways. Yeah, so back in the early 90s, a group of psychologists, including the, the sort of primary researcher was this guy named Arthur Aaron. Uh, who I've since met. He's a really interesting guy. He and some colleagues decided to sort of see if they could create romantic love in the lab. And they created this study. It was very informal. So they never wrote up this version of the study. But from my understanding, this is like pieced together from interviews and references. But the way I think it worked is that they had heterosexual men and women enter the lab from separate doors. And before each one came in, they said to them, like, we're going to do this study. The other person knows a little bit about you. They're very excited to meet you. And then they had them come in. They sat across from each other. They spent 90 minutes asking and responding to these 36 increasingly personal questions and then stared into each other's eyes at the end for four minutes without speaking. And then they left once again through separate doors. And then they said to them, like, if you decide you want to stay in touch with this person, like, let us know. We'll see if we can make that work. But that was like not a requirement. It was just an option. And what I read, and this is actually, this is in print in a later study, is that two of the participants from that original study later went on to get married. I thought it was really interesting. And I just sort of like filed it away in my mind and thought, ah, I'm skeptical about this, but like, Maybe one day I'll try it. Then one day, 
several years later, I did try it out on a first date with this guy that I knew, but not particularly well. And it was such a great experience. Like it was, it was fun and it was terrifying. And, you know, I felt like in the course of just a few hours, like I really got to know this person and it was sort of an interesting experience. So I had a blog at the time where I was like writing about the research that I was coming across. And I thought about writing this for my blog. And then I was like, no, this is a good story. Like, this is an interesting story. And I thought, I'll see if I can find someone to like publish it somewhere else. And luckily that someone was the New York Times. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know that worked out really well. And the sort of strange thing about that experience was this guy, Mark and I did this study. It was like late July. And then there was this long period of like ambiguity about whether or not we were going to be friends or we were going to be something more than friends. And it was during that period that I wrote the first draft of the article and I sent it to the New York Times and I didn't hear back. And this was would have been like October. Then we did start dating and I kept thinking about that article and I thought, oh God, if they do end up deciding to publish it. So the ending was like, you're probably wondering if he and I fell in love. And the answer is, I don't know. Like, we're still figuring that (laughs) out. And I thought that would be so awkward. That would be so strange if I'm on record in the New York Times saying like, I don't know if I love this person that I'm now in a committed relationship with. So I revised it. I changed the last paragraph. I sent it back to the New York Times. And I heard back from the editor like shortly thereafter. And then he published the piece in January. So I had this really strange experience of like being in this very new relationship. And suddenly it was, you know, not only did I write about it in the New York Times, but suddenly like people were calling to have me on television. I mean, they wanted to have both of us on television and you know, I was just like swamped by requests for interviews because people were so fascinated by the story. It was a very strange, wild experience. Oh, it must have been. And so interesting as well that it was when you said, okay, we, yes, we are in love, that that was the moment that the New York Times seized on it. So it was proof that this experiment worked, right? Like that's what everyone's looking for because we want this aha moment of the formula for love. Yeah. So I find this um, study really interesting because we do quite a lot of this stuff in acting. Oh yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, quite a few acting exercises that I have done in my life and that I teach other people to do are about creating connection and intimacy and vulnerability with the person that you're in a scene with. And that does involve sometimes asking intimate, honest questions and getting vulnerable, honest answers. And literally there is an exercise where you just look at look in people's eyes as well. Yeah. And then I was thinking, well, it's not surprising perhaps that a lot of co-stars fall in love with each other, right? If they're mm. practicing that this kind of, yeah. kind of process. So again, for people who aren't familiar, what are some of the questions in this these 36? Yeah, so they start out really casual. I mean, they start out like, if you could have anyone to dinner, living or dead, who would it be? Or like, would you like to be famous? And if so, in what way? 
they're in like groups of 12. So each, as you progress from the first group to the second group to the third group, they become like more revealing. They require a little bit more vulnerability. And so then they, they get to things like describe your relationship with your mother or, gosh, I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I've looked at them. I do have the list okay, in great. front of me. Uh, <laughs> here's one. If there's something you've dreamed of doing for a long time, why haven't you done it? I really liked that one. Oh, yeah. I like that. If you were going to become a close friend with your partner, please share what would be important for him or her to know. Mm. When did you last cry in front of another person and by yourself? So, yeah, that that was uh, they're nice. 27, 29, and 30, so quite down, so there you down go. the list. Yeah. yeah, they're really nice. So these questions obviously inspire vulnerability and trust and intimacy and, and connection, and there's a lot of talk around the power of vulnerability as well, obviously championed by Brene Brown. Is that why these questions work? Because they're encouraging us to be in a state of openness. And is that what is required for connection and therefore love? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think that's oh, a big okay, part of it. it. Nice talking to you, Mandy. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think it is, it is in a way, it's like that simple. What I really noticed when we did it was like, I had been online dating a lot at the time. And I think when you meet someone in that context of online dating, you do these dates like over and over again. And you come and you have questions that you kind of rely on asking the other person or things that you always kind of reveal about yourself. And even though the conversation may wander a little bit from date to date, it tends to be, I think, fairly superficial and if it gets too intimate too quickly, it often feels uncomfortable, like someone is revealing too much about themselves. And I think many of us tend to sort of rely on these narratives that we've created about who we are, and we we show up and sort of present a version of ourselves to this other person. And the thing about these questions is that they you don't do any of that, right? Like they make it really difficult to present that comfortable narrative of who you are. And you really have to sort of, you do end up revealing things about yourself that you wouldn't otherwise, but you do it in such a, a way that's very comfortably paced. And the other person, you know, like the researchers call it sustained escalating reciprocal personalistic self-disclosure, which is basically like Sexy. both people are, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's key, right? It's reciprocal. Both people are doing it. It's sustained. You do it like in one setting. It's escalating, meaning it starts pretty casual and gets more intimate. And I, I feel like all of these details are really well thought out so that it does create this vulnerability, but that's really safe. You know, a lot of the questions like ask you to compliment the other person or say something like nice and thoughtful about them. And like, those are so great. I mean, there's just something so nice about hearing another person give you a thoughtful compliment. And it's like, we don't do that enough, you know? And so I think there are these ways that the experience is designed to be enjoyable and like that it creates this sort of like interpersonal pleasurable tension, you know? And I think that is part of what happens when you fall in love. 
It almost shortcuts the process of getting to the good stuff. As you say, that narrative that we present that inevitably will wear off because it's too tiring to keep it up. It sort of just cuts that away from the get-go and you get to see behind the curtain immediately and decide if, if you're liking what you see immediately as opposed to having to take some time. So does this process of safe vulnerability, would you say that you can use it in any relationship? So not just uh, getting to know you one or a loved one, but say people are already in a relationship, but they're feeling a bit disconnected or there's, you know, something's not right. Would you say something like this process, perhaps not necessarily let's sit down and ask each, each other these 36 questions, but the idea being to create safe, progressive, reciprocal, truthful sharing is a good thing to practice? Totally. I mean, one of the interesting things about the questions is they're really associated with love now, but psychologists have long thought of them in terms of just like trust and intimacy. And so in the world of psychology, the series of questions is known as the fast friends protocol, and they've used them in all kinds of different contexts, like between police officers and members of a community, between people from different ethnic backgrounds, different political backgrounds. And they seem very consistently to create this sense of intimacy and connection. You know, the interesting thing about having written this article is that I get emails from people. I've gotten so many (laughs) over the years. And I also meet people who have done these questions and often the context is romantic, but not always. Like I got an email from a woman who, whose sister was dying and they had been estranged for many years. And she went to the hospice where she was in care and they did a few of these questions every day. That was like one of my favorite examples, but there are really so many, like I heard from a group of friends who did them on like a long car trip And so I think, you know, there are so many contexts in which like connecting with another person in that way is like, you know, it seems to work. Like when you let your guard down and you approach another person with like real curiosity and openness, like you feel connected to them, which makes sense, right? But there are just so many reasons not to do it as we go about our lives, I think. There are so many. It's so much easier. And for some reason, it is really hard to to just stand in yeah. front of someone and be vulnerable and say what your truth is. It's hard and we're not very good at it. So, yeah, I think this was just a really lovely reminder that uh, it's not necessarily a solve all, but it is such a helpful thing to help foster any kind of relationship is that, yeah, connection, vulnerability and intimacy. Another element that I really like about this study and what it points to, which um, you've written about, is how it suggests that we might reframe how we look at love from being a passive event that happens to us. And in, instead, it's more of an action and love. So we treat it like a, like a verb as opposed to a noun. I really like that idea. Could you talk a bit about that? <laughs> yeah. You know, the other person who has written about this and talked about it in ways that I would say are more eloquent than me is Bell Hooks. And she essentially argues, and I, I really like this idea. I really think it's so powerful, which is that like we tend to think about love as a feeling. And when we think about love as a feeling, 
The result is that we're more willing to accept not very good relationships. You know, she, she actually says like abusive relationships. And I think that's true. If we think about love as something that we do, something that we get to offer another person, something that we have real agency over, I think we're less likely to end up in these kinds of situations where, like, I'll use my own life as an example. So I was in this relationship for about 10 years from about age 20 to 30, kind of on and off a bit during that time. But basically, you know, I think there were many ways in which the relationship just wasn't very healthy. Like we weren't very good at being kind to one another. I would have said every day of that entire relationship that I loved him, you know, like I would never have said, oh, I don't love him because I had such strong feelings and the feelings were not always positive, you know, like we we argued a lot and we could be cruel to one another. And there were ways in which that relationship, I think, was like manipulative and unhealthy. There were also like really joyful times, but on the whole, I think it we weren't doing a very good job at approaching each other with care and generosity and kindness, which I think are really fundamental aspects of love. But we were able to get away with that for a long time because we had these strong feelings of attraction or emotional investment because we had been together for a long time because we moved to another country together. You know, there were all these ways in which our lives felt very bound up with one another, but that really got in the way of us kind of stepping back and saying like, are we kind to one another? Are we good to one another? And I think if you reframe love as a verb, as an action, then there's just less base for that kind of abusive or unhealthy behavior. So that means to love someone means to be kind and generous and respectful, as opposed to have the feeling of being in love. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important not to totally discount the feeling of being in love. I mean, I think there is a real biological process that's happening in our bodies and in our brains when we are in romantic love. You know, if you start looking across disciplines to try and like define love, you will very quickly discover that like no one agrees on what it is. And it's really becomes difficult to define in a consistent way because different people define it so differently. However, I do think there is an aspect, like an embodied aspect of that feeling, which is important. But, you know, I think in my own relationship, for example, like I'm like attracted to my partner. I enjoy his company. He like is fun to be around, but also I go out of my way to supplement all of that or I try to, I mean, it's certainly imperfect, but I think we both try to go out of our way to supplement all of that feeling with action, you know, like, like, I think it's got to be both of those things because like just one is probably not going to be enough to sustain you. And feelings change so often. They're fleeting. Yeah. They're, they're all yeah. so temporal. Uh, you mentioned the biology of love, and I would love to talk about that as well. I would love to talk about that uh, because I find that so, so fascinating, the evolutionary reason 
for us to fall in love. And you talk about um, Helen Fisher's work, the social anthropologist. I just think it's fascinating. So we have these in the reward and the pleasure centers in our brains, they release dopamine when we're in love, right? If I got that right, which suggests that it is a primal human drive. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing that Helen Fisher says that I think, I do think is really interesting is that love is a drive and it's separate from the sex drive, but it is, you know, similar to, and that's like all of our human drives that it is this thing that's like built into our biology and we have this desire to pursue it like innately. I find that like a really interesting idea. Some research from my friend Carrie Jenkins, who is a philosopher, she has this great book called What Love Is and What It Can Be. So she talks about the tension between like the biological idea of love and the social idea of love because they both have a lot of prominence. And, you know, the biological idea is essentially the one that Fisher talks about a lot, which is we have this biological impulse. It has to do with like mating and perpetuating our species. And we fall in love because it's an effective strategy for reproduction. And also because we are fundamentally social creatures and, you know, all of those things. And then the social idea of love is basically that like the way we think about love and the way we practice love is different across time periods, across cultures. And so you have these two things that seem to be at odds with each other. And the way that Carrie talks about it that I find really useful for thinking about this is she talks about it as an actor playing a role. So she says like the actor is like the biological machinery And then the role is like whatever culture you happen to be in. And so the way that love is practiced at any place in time is really a combination of those two things, right? You've got this machinery, but like you, we're also all embedded in these cultures that tell us how love should be practiced in an ideal way. I find this like a really great way to kind of make sense of like some of the competing theories about romantic love. Like it is both biological. It probably is this fundamental human drive. And yet the form that that drive takes is going to be so dictated by the context in which we live. Yeah, that is so interesting. Do you think, or do you know that fascinating thing about um, if when you're feeling in love, it's similar to having a mental illness? (laughs) Like, is that, yes, is that, I've heard some of this. does that exist across cultures and throughout time? Do we all feel, experience a mental illness when we're in love? <laughs> I mean, what I could tell you is that I have a useful way of thinking about this is like, love is madness is like a metaphor that is really common. And it's common across many cultures. I don't know that it's in every culture, but it's certainly in a lot of cultures and you can find it across time periods. Like, It's in Shakespeare. There's a famous quote by like Frederick Nietzsche about love being like madness. There's like my favorite, which is like Beyonce's crazy in love. (laughs) Um, But I do think like it it is true that we, we do think about love as madness. There's some evidence that biologically when we're in love, our brains are, there are patterns in our brains that are not unlike the brains of people with 
obsessive compulsive disorder. But it, even if you think about that for a minute, that makes sense, right? It like totally when you does. first yeah. fall in love, <laughs> you know, you can't stop thinking about someone. You feel like they've taken up residence in your brain. It's just this really challenging experience. So when you're like, is love, is it just a verb? It's like, well, yes, it is a verb, but like there is this experience of like feeling that these feelings that we have are beyond our control sometimes. Mm -hmm. The way I like to think about it is that we have a choice about what we do with those feelings and sort of who we invest our energy in and who we might decide to separate ourselves from. And I think we can make those choices in ways that are a little bit more thoughtful and healthy than our pop culture might suggest, at least. Yeah, so going into the pop culture stories and narratives about love, which in your book you go into dismantling and interpreting. So the scripts out there tell us that love is this thing that happens to us. And again, we we have no agency. And you talk a lot about how that really limits our perspective of love and therefore our understanding of it because so much of our understanding comes through stories. I think this is a it's a really interesting point. So how does the representation of love in pop culture affect our experience of it? So one way to think about it, so I came across this research which was actually in the field of artificial intelligence, but basically these people were is like a a sociologist and a computer scientist, but they're trying to think about like, how do we make knowledge? Like, where does knowledge come from? And their theory essentially was that like all human knowledge is contained in stories and that stories kind of function as these like ways in which we share knowledge and that they get indexed in our brains. And then the more stories you have, then the more potential scripts you have for how to live your life and for, you know, how the world works and how to make meaning of your experience and all of these things. And so they kind of talk about like, we have these micro scripts, which is like what to say on a first date and what not to say on a first date. And then we have these sort of macro scripts when it comes to love, at least, which is like the trajectory of love over the course of our lives. And so the more diverse the love stories are that you consume, then the broader your sense of what role love might have in your life and how it might work. But if you are like me, let's say, and you spend much of your youth watching movies like Dirty Dancing and Pretty Woman and Sixteen Candles and um, gosh, I could probably go on for a really long time. That's going to give you like a set of expectations for how things work. And some of the expectations that I got, I think like did not serve me well at all. Like one was that I had this idea if two people argued a lot in love, then they must like love each other more. (laughs) That that was like passion and that that passion was good. And that was a sign that you were meant to be together because you really wanted this person if you were willing to really like fight with them. I no longer believe that that is true, but that's certainly like (laughs) an idea that I absorbed from popular culture. Another one was like this idea that as a woman, that my or as a girl, I should say, it was like a teenager that my 
whole social value was like wrapped up in my desirability to the boys around me. And like, I look back on that and I think like, God, like how much time and energy I wasted in my childhood, sort of like worrying about my value because I didn't feel that I was adequately desirable. These ideas are so like wrapped up in our love stories and and in ways that that are really like subtle. You know what I mean? Like we don't really notice, but like any Cinderella story is really about like being chosen and the girl who's chosen, right? Like the Cinderella versus like her wicked stepsisters is famously like modest and meek and quiet and passive. And she is rewarded for having those qualities. Whereas like the stepsisters are, you know, they're loud, they're assertive, they go after what they want, they're bossy. You could say that they're abusive and that's certainly not a desirable (laughs) characteristic, but these things are tied together, right? And so our notions of like femininity are really wrapped up in these questions of like desirability and deservingness and thinking about romantic love as like the ultimate reward for being a good girl is like, I don't know, that's pretty messed up. (laughs) And being saved by love. Like you're waiting for this powerful man to save you. Being saved, that that's the only way you can be happy. Yeah. Which seems like, I don't know, too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think things are getting better? I mean, are there more progressive, more useful stories about love now, or are we still stuck in this same paradigm? I do think our, our stories are getting better. I mean, even over the course of the years I spent writing the book, I noticed like there is some evolution in our love stories. I mean, I I went out of my way to seek more diverse stories of love, but I, I also think that it's happening on its own. Like there are, you kind of have to look a little bit harder, but I mean, there are lots of queer love stories that have hit the mainstream. Finally, I think it has only happened really in the past like five years that you are seeing queer relationships in movies and on TV. And it's not like there's no narrative of like, I don't know if you've seen Schitt's Creek. That's like one of my favorite examples. I have not, but I'll check it out. Okay. So I won't spoil it, but I will say that there is everyone's favorite love story is a queer love story, but it's also like, there's really interesting things about it. So like for one, these two characters are in this world in which homophobia is never part of the plot. So for a long time, it was like, if we had a queer love story, it was about two characters who loved each other, but other people's homophobia or their own internalized homophobia was keeping them apart. So it was like, we couldn't just have two men or two women or two non-binary characters or one non-binary character, right? Like we couldn't have these two people just coming together because they loved each other and having like the regular ordinary challenges that like straight people get in their love stories, right? Like the challenge of figuring out how to be vulnerable for another person, (laughs) you know, like one of the creators, Dan Levy has been like really open about this. And I've read some interviews where he's talked about this and he was like, I just wanted to create a queer love story. That was just a love story. Like I wanted to imagine that they lived in this world where nobody 
cared that they were gay. And so that's what he does. You know, the other really interesting and kind of progressive things about that show is like the character of David is, I don't think they use a word to describe his sexual identity, but it would be like pansexual. So basically he's not bisexual. He's just like, he's attracted to who he's attracted to and Mm -hmm. whatever, regardless of their gender identity. And the show explains it with like a wine metaphor, like, like he and this other character have this conversation and she's like, I thought you liked red wine. And she's like, but you're telling me you like white wine. And he's like, I'm telling you, I like all wine. (laughs) I like wine. Full stop. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so well done. And And again, it treats this sexuality that is often marginalized as like no big deal. There's also like non-monogamy in the show, consensual non-monogamy, which it again treats as no big deal. And like the, there's a show like that on mainstream, you know, network television that everybody is watching that wasn't an option even five years ago. So yeah, I, I do think we're getting better, which is great. So we're moving in the, the right direction, but obviously still so influenced by what we have ingested throughout our lives to this point. So then how do we know what a good relationship is? How do we know what's normal if the, the <laughs> cultural information coming to us is setting unrealistic expectations, both in a about what a relationship, how good it should be or how dramatic it should be or that you're going to be saved by it, the feelings you're going to have all of the time, <laughs> whatever it yeah. is if that's coming to us. How do we escape that and know if we're in the right relationship? I mean, I don't know if you can escape it completely. Like I have spent the past like decade of my life researching and writing about this and I still don't feel like I have a perfect understanding. (laughs) Of course, of course. But I do think there are things that you can do. And I think part of it is like going after more diverse stories of love. You know, I think something that often happens is that we have these scripts for how love is supposed to work in our lives. And then we feel like if we are off script, then we feel like a lot of anxiety So this happens if you get divorced, for example, which like we're more comfortable with in the Western world than we were 50 years ago, of course. But like still, there's a lot of stigma attached to divorce as as a kind of failure. Or if you're 35 and single, it's like, well, why haven't you found your life partner? What are you doing wrong? Are you too picky? You know, I think there are all these ways and we have these narratives about how things are supposed to go. We have these scripts. And if our life doesn't match up with the kind of ideal version of love, then I think it's really common to feel anxious, to feel like we're doing something wrong. And so like one way to kind of deal with that is to think more critically about those scripts, right? Like, I think a lot of people stay in a relationship longer than perhaps they should because they feel like if they end that relationship, then somehow they've failed, that that means the relationship was not a success. When in reality, like, there are lots of reasons to get out of a relationship that isn't working. And if we made more space for that, then I think we would have healthier relationships and we would be a lot happier. And people would essentially be more free to choose the kinds of relationships that they want, which I think would make our lives 
better, most of us. I mean, there's just so much shame attached to these things. So, so thinking critically is one step. I think another step is seeking out diverse stories of love, of the way people practice love in their lives, the way they arrange their families, like just kind of being open to these different versions of love, I think opens up more possibilities and also reduces that like shame and stigma of doing it wrong. You know, to answer your question of like, how do we know if we're doing it right? (laughs) I'm sort of reluctant to accept the notion that there is like one right way or one right person. But I do think that there are like good metrics that you can use. And I think it's really like kindness and generosity, you know, like, and John Gottman talks a lot about this in his research and he defines kindness and generosity in like a couple of different ways. Let me try and break this down because I think it's really interesting. So basically like research has shown that part of what's important in a relationship is this kind of like, we can call it kindness. Researchers might call it like responsiveness. The example that I often talk about is so John Gottman says that it's important that your partners respond to one another's bids. And a bid is just like someone's request for your attention. So like my partner is very into cars. I really could not care about cars at all. I know very little about them. I do not find them interesting. But when we're walking down the street, we're like walking the dog through the neighborhood, he'll be like, what do you think about this car? And he'll like point to a car. And I could just say like, I don't know, like, I don't care. (laughs) But instead, I come up with something to say. (laughs) And it's like, It's not like an extraordinary kindness on my part to like engage him in this conversation that is not interesting to me, but it is something that I know matters. And so I bother to do it, you know, and it's just like this kind of like that is totally a small thing, but it is kindness, right? It's just like someone requests your attention, you engage with them. Another way of describing it or thinking about it is like celebrating together. So there's this really interesting research that shows that, you know, I think what we might think is that if something bad happens, if we have a negative event in our lives, then we really want our romantic partner to be able to provide comfort and support. And while that is true, what actually seems to matter even more is people celebrating with us when positive things happen. So actually, like if there's some really big news, something good happens in your partner's life, you should make a really big deal about it. (laughs) Again, it's like a small thing that goes like a long way. And it is a kind of generosity. The other thing that I can think of that I think is really important that also is from Gottman's research is this idea of, so it's like responding to bids, celebrating together. And then the third thing is like generously interpreting the other person's actions. So the example is like, if your partner, let's say you're going to meet out at a restaurant and they're late to dinner and you're really frustrated because you're like hungry or impatient or you're worried you're going to lose your reservation or whatever, one way you can respond is just being like, you're always late. This drives me crazy. When are you going to get better at this? Another way you can respond is sort of saying like, uh, 
he probably had like, you know, whatever the meeting he was dreading at work went longer than he expected or, you know, or just find a way to sort of generously imagine what your partner's motivations are, to think about them with some kindness and with some empathy. You know, whenever I talk about that one, I'm very mindful that there's a way in which that can like flip over into one person making excuses for another person's unhealthy or abusive behavior. So it feels important to like acknowledge that like it should go both ways, that generosity. But I think if you can offer these things to your partner, if you can offer this kind of kindness and generosity, and they are capable of offering it to you, then that's a sign like that you're in a good relationship, that it's healthy, that you're taking care of one another. I think if you find that the other person isn't offering that to you, then that's like a red flag, right? But also, if you're not offering that to them, right? Like if they're offering this to you, offering this to you, and you're not able to reciprocate, then that's a sign that, you know, the relationship is unhealthy as well, right? So I think those are like maybe the best metrics for how to figure out whether the relationship is working. That is super useful and practical. Thank you so much. It just made me <laughs> think when you were talking. So you know a lot about love and you research it every day, I imagine, close to. Do you think you're better at it as a result? Um, yeah, I do, actually. You know, I'm always reluctant to be positioned as an expert. I've, I don't know. I find that uncomfortable. I think the moment you, you're positioned as an expert, you sort of think you've got it figured out and you kind of like, I don't know, there's some dangerous hubris there. <laughs> you and Mark can never break up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I had Pretty an much, editor. Right? <laughs> I've had people ask me about that before. Like, do you feel a lot of pressure for your relationship to work? And I don't. And I think part of the reason I don't feel that way is because I don't think of myself as an expert because I think of myself just like everyone else, like I'm figuring it out. But because I've spent so much time researching and writing about it, I do feel like well equipped to kind of like, not just like handle challenging times when we have them, which we do, of course, but to sort of like try and like avoid getting into territory that that isn't good for us. So there are all these ways in which we have built our whole relationship around research that I've done. And I think it helps. I mean, you're speaking to me. I'm absolutely this kind of person as well. So I, I think it's very <laughs> sensible and clearly has very positive results. Like you guys have a relationship contract, right? We have a relationship contract. Yeah. That we review every year. It was funny last year. So we did it last year, I think in June. And so I guess it'll be coming up again soon. But we did it at a restaurant. We went out to a restaurant. We brought a laptop. We like ordered beers and pizza. But we're sitting at the bar. And so we were sitting next to these two people. And they ended up like, they were like, what are you guys doing? And so we started explaining. (laughs) So basically, like every year we sit down, we go over the contract and talk about like, what do we want to change? Like what's working, what's not working? You know, we've been together for almost six years now. And so it's definitely less negotiation now. We sort of like hit a bit of a stride, at least for the time being. But it turned out the guy, it was this guy and his friend, and he had just gotten engaged. And so he had like lots of questions. 
<laughs> so we ended up like talking him through it. He was like, um, jackpot. So glad we came to this bar. <laughs> no, he was like, tell me more. Yeah, that was funny. But we have a contract. And, and what I love about it is that basically it just means like we're not going to assume that the way things are is the way they have to be or that what we want now is what we're going to want in the future. And that like there's a time and a space to like sit down and talk about these things and it's really nice. I don't know. Like I wrote about this in the New York Times. It got a lot of pushback from people who thought it was like the least romantic thing they've ever heard. But I also heard from a lot of young people, especially young women, that they loved it and they wanted to try it. And I think our contract covers all kinds of things. So it's like housework, taking care of the dog, guests, like weekends, like how we spend our free time. It's like everything. Everything that we could think of. I think part of the value in it, like the things people seem most curious about are like, one is the part about sex. So they're like, they assume that we like schedule sex on like certain days and times and then we have to stick to it. And then if we don't, then like (laughs) we're going to break up. That's it. Break (laughs) up the next day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But no, it's really just like, it's more like, what are the ethics of this? Like, what, like, do we want to be monogamous? And, you know, like, I think it's a really short part of the contract, but it's like, yes, like monogamy is something that's important to both of us. And like, yes, we value sex and want to make it a priority. It's just like, it's simple, right? It's like, what is the the ethos of this part of our relationship? But it's nice to talk about. And to know that you're on the same page. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Literally sex is really hard to talk about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is housework, which I think is part of what makes the contract very appealing to some people and especially to women, because we know there's like so much data that like women in heterosexual relationships, women do most of the significantly more of the housework, even though there's also research that shows that most men think they do 50-50 and most women disagree. (laughs) (laughs) And then the women are right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So because domestic labor, it's well established that it's not evenly divided. Like what I love about the contract and what I love about the fact that this has been a part of our relationship the whole time is that like we have worked really hard to split things in a way that feels equitable to us, that feels fair. And like, you know, like I haven't done laundry in several years and like it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> you know, I think what happens a, a lot in heterosexual relationships is like the woman will be the one who, even though the man will do things around the house, the woman has to like be the director and like ask him to do it. And like, I don't the think mental about load. When, the mental load. Yeah, the mental load. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the contract kind of prevents that from becoming a problem because we are each fully responsible for our own tasks. And so I don't have to micromanage the task that he does and he doesn't the task that I do. And it's not like we've always got it perfect, but I do feel like it's pretty good. We're both happy with it and it's up for negotiation always, which is nice. It appeals to me as well. I I think it makes so much sense to just know what's expected of you because then you can meet those Mm -hmm. expectations and there's no murky limbo area where you're both getting annoyed with each other because you think they should have done whatever the thing is. It's clear. Yeah. And I think so much 
conflict in a relationship really just comes from like unspoken expectations. So So it's nice to kind of bother to talk about things. One other thing that you talk about, which I think uh, listeners would find really interesting, is how novelty, experiencing novelty together can be a really beneficial thing for your relationship. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So this is something that Helen Fisher talks a lot about in her research. And basically, like, what they have found is that there's this thing called misattribution of arousal, which is basically, like, when you're stimulated, you're more likely to attribute it to the person that you're with rather than the thing that you're doing. And the original study that kind of talked about that was here in Vancouver, actually, on the Capilano Suspension Bridge, which is this suspension bridge that's, like, 400 feet above this little canyon Um, It's very exciting, especially if you are remotely afraid of heights. And basically what they did, and they could never do this today, is like this, this was back in the 70s when like research ethics were different. (laughs) The sweet spot of research. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they had this attractive young woman stand at the end of the bridge and she would ask men questions like as soon as they had crossed and then she would write down her phone number in the corner of the paper tear it off and say if you have any questions about our study like feel free to give me a call and then she also did the same thing at the end of this like flat walkway and what they found was that the people who had crossed the bridge were way more likely to call her and basically ask her out and so that their conclusion is like They attribute like they're racing hard and their sweaty palms to this attractive young woman as opposed to this like 400 foot drop below them. And it's a really fun study to talk about. But basically, this seems to be true. Like this has been replicated, not this particular study, but in other ways in the research that we do misattribute arousal. And so something that Mark and I do is like when we go, we have like a date night every, it's like the first week of every month. And the rule is that the other person, like we take turns planning it. And like, if it's your night, you have to plan it all by yourself and you decide what to do and and you have to do something that we wouldn't normally do. So it's not just like dinner at our favorite restaurant. Like we go to a new restaurant or we like we've gone on a bike ride, we've gone kayaking, we've gone to plays. Like we just end up doing all this like weird stuff. And it's cool because we end up experiencing parts of the city or events that we might not otherwise experience. Like we've been to the planetarium and It's also like that sense, like a regular kind of injection of novelty. So like we get to do something cool and fun and interesting. We get to spend time together, but also we have that feeling of like attributing the excitement, the stimulation of doing something new to being together, which is nice. Oh, I think it's such a a great, helpful tip and it actually works. It's not just that you're doing something fun together. It, it works on a deeper level in your physiology yeah. as well. I, I think that is fascinating. Well, Mandy, thank you so, so much for talking to me today. Um, I ask every guest uh, the same final three questions to end. So question one is, uh, what is the most significant lesson that you have learned in your life? God, in my life. Well, okay, so the, uh, <laughs> the answer that I came up with is, is really about love because it's maybe the thing that I've thought about the most. And 
you know, I think it is that as much as like you as an individual can control your own experiences and make your own choices and, and kind of be thoughtful, you know, ultimately there are always, always going to be things beyond our control. I mean, this seems like an obvious lesson, but I feel like it's the lesson that I learned like over and over and over again. Like I can't control what other people do. I can't control that there's a global pandemic. You know, I can't, like, I feel like the lesson that that I've learned and that I continue to learn over and over again is like that I only, I just only have so much control. And like, it's great to exercise that where you can. And then the thing that I continue working on is like accepting where I I can't, you know? And obviously for someone who's like, I'm going to do some research to figure out how to be better at this. That is like a hard lesson, (laughs) but that's the lesson. So that's something that you still feel you have to learn. That I have to learn all the time. Like the thing about this pandemic is like, I'm learning that I can't control whether or not other people wear masks or stay appropriate distance from each other or think it's a good idea to go out when I think it's dangerous. And like, it's such a lesson in the lack of control. So yeah, I'm always learning it. (laughs) Okay, so you you can't control everything. And what is something else that you, you feel you still have to learn where there's more learning to be had? Can I answer the same thing? (laughs) Yeah, you can. Sure. Yeah, I do think it's the same thing. It's just like... It's an ongoing lesson. (laughs) It is an ongoing lesson. Like I'm really constantly always learning to accept things that are beyond my control. Learning and then failing and then learning and succeeding and then failing and... (laughs) as the cycle continues. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. No, that's an excellent answer, particularly in these times. And so finally, this podcast is called The Most of It. So in your opinion, from your perspective, how do we make the most of our lives? I mean, I really believe, so, you know, I spent all of these years researching and writing about love, and now I'm working on a new book that is about it's really hard to describe because I'm still sort of figuring it out. But I th- I think it's about, among other things, like belonging and kindness and social connection. But it's also about like loneliness. But basically, like, I think the way that we make the most of our lives is to like really connect with other people. I mean, I think figuring out how to see another person without agenda without expectation to just like really see who they are to sort of place ourselves in relationship to other people. I was talking to Mark about this the other day and the metaphor that I came up with, I was listening to this podcast about quantum physics. (laughs) Nice. And they talk about, they talk, this is like the many worlds or like the multiverse theory of physics. But the idea is like, you know, that there are all these each time, a choice is made that the universe branches and that like the version of you who made one choice is in one branch and the version is on the other Mm -hmm. branch. But um, when that happens, like when two objects interact in the universe and, and split into multiple possibilities, it's like quantum entanglement. And I really like the metaphor of like entanglement. Like I think what makes us happy and what makes our lives seem meaningful is entangling them with other people's lives and like you know you you're making the choice to connect with another person and to move forward into the future with them and I don't just mean romantically I mean like 
your neighbors and your family and your communities. Like I think when we entangle ourselves with one another, our lives are richer for having done it. I mean, it comes with so much potential vulnerability, so much cost, right? Like it's terrifying. We lose a certain amount of individual freedom and we risk getting hurt, but I think the rewards are quite significant. That is wonderful. That's a beautiful note to end on. Mandy, (laughs) thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. So there we go. Love is indeed all around us. I hope you really enjoyed today's episode. If you did, it would be great if you wouldn't mind rating, reviewing and subscribing as this lets other people know that we're around. Uh, And other than that, thanks to Raw Collective and I'll see you next time. Bye.